Happy New Year, everybody. Oh my goodness. Let's start off 2024 with a bang. And I'm going to start off this season where a lot of people are doing reflection on the past year or they've already done that in between Christmas and New Year's. Maybe you're the kind of person who's looking forward. And I want to do a little bit of both together today, but also start off with a confession. A little little confession, a little peek into my former world, my former life as I started out as a, a theater major in college. I wanted to be an actor or, or someone who runs the camera or anything having to do with theater or film. But I've never seen the play and I've never seen the movie Grease. I know some of the songs and it was like this, this uh, secret shame I carried all throughout being a theater major. Then when I switched to theology, I was free, and I'm just confessing it here on YouTube right now. The reason I say that is uh, to give a little framework for this next idea of I've been a leadership book nerd for quite a while. I've been reading a lot, praying about Solid Ground's future, praying about us, praying, asking God, where are we supposed to go? And resource after resource that I read reverse engineers back to a book that I've never made it all the way through. And it's called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. And if you're not familiar with this guy, you've bumped up against his ideas if you've ever watched a TED Talk, if you've ever read something on, on leadership in the past, oh, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 years. This guy... Uh, Interesting, interesting guy. He was a Jewish rabbi and a family therapist. He became an early expert in family systems theory, working with children, but then realizing that the kids would have a lot of improvement in a one-on-one -on -one therapy session, but then you're sending them back into a system that may be unhealthy and they would regress, that kind of a light bulb moment. So he was an expert in that. And in this book, uh, Failure of Nerve, um, he expands on that idea that relationships function together uh, and, and there's a system. And for a lot of us, that's common knowledge now. But later, the thing that distinguished him is that he applied this family systems theory first to his synagogue and then to Christian churches and then to businesses and eventually to nations. He was a sought-after advisor to the White House and other heads of state. In his book, the reason why I've never made it all the way through is it's pretty dense. <laughs> but I have ingested this book through, it's almost like other leaders have, have chewed it up like I'm a baby bird and, and digested a little bit for me. Uh, Happy New Year, that, that image is free for you. But this guy... Is a massive voice, not just in my head and in my heart, but also in the voices that I listen to. And I, I wanted to just let you know, this talk together, it's not going to be a deep dive into one specific scripture, but this is, this is a, a look ahead and an image of what I'm sensing that God is calling you and me to be in our world. So uh, I'm going to go through the basic premise. So if you can stick with me just a little bit, uh, I want to summarize his book quickly and then go to Matthew chapter 14. So if you want to turn, if you've got a paper Bible like me, turn over to Matthew chapter 14 and get ready. And then we'll tie all of this together. So let me, uh, let me summarize the basic ideas in failure of nerve. Cliff, Cliff Notes version. See, it's 
first week of the year, you're already learning something. And this will help me too. So the basic idea is that sociologists for a long time have documented what they call this myth of progress. And it's become this almost religious kind of faith that some people have, that a lot of people have. It's this belief that human history is always moving in a straight line towards this utopian, uh, better future. And it's snuck into even the common language that we use. I, reading about this, I was like, oh my goodness, this kind of thought has even snuck into the words that I say. All the time I'll say, well, now we know that, blah, blah, blah. Or I'll say things like, oh my goodness, it's 2024. We are so far beyond those old outdated ideas or it's 2024. I mean, we've really made some progress. And this idea can sneak into religious circles. I, I remember being in college in a guy's dorm. All the time you would hear guys say, well, I used to struggle with, and then fill in the blank, this idea that, oh, my goodness, the past is behind us and we're so much better now. But other cultures that, that aren't in this Western mindset, they view history differently. It's not a straight line. They view history moving in seasons or cycles. And they, they have this idea that history, yes, we can pro make some progress, but there's uh, just like every year, there's a winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, unless you live in Southern California. But history has moods to it. And Friedman picked up on this idea about uh, people, about history, this big, heady stuff. And he said that when you actually look at the raw data, just try to take your, take your uh, preferences out and be as objective as you can, we can see in our culture, I mean, and he's also, he wrote this in 1997. He said, it's easy to see, especially in America, that our society is progressing economically and technologically. You can count it. People had more money and there was a higher living standard. Science and technology and medicine, all were making these advances. Lifespans were growing longer and longer. And all of this stuff is, is it an eye uh, like an all-time high. So, um, and Edwin Friedman is saying, mm, maybe we need to rethink that, that all of this is progress. There's some things that are progressing, but there's still a ton of anxiety around us. There's still wars in the world. There's mental health issues all over the world. There's a, a growing, growing trend of, of just mass divorce uh, gender and sexuality are up in the air, especially in America. There's, there's this sense that there's no meaning to life, especially for those people who, who really own a secular worldview. It feels in so many senses like things are coming off the hinges. So it's sometimes two things can be true at the same time or there's some overlap. And yeah, there's progress in some areas but it doesn't take a lot of persuasion to persuade you that it feels like the world's coming apart at the seams. And one of the biggest contributions that Friedman made is, is identifying five aspects of anxiety that can happen in a person, but also in a culture or even in a whole country. 
And uh, we're going to build on this uh, because the passage directly relates to uh, to these five these five aspects of an anxious culture. So this first aspect that he says is that marks an anxious culture is reactivity. I mean, just think about the 24/7 digital news cycle that thrives on making you and me act reactive. And by the way, that reactivity that that's that's uh, shaped in us and fermented in us, it drives up advertising revenue. We talk about that here often, but this is one of the the biggest viruses in our culture. There's people making money off of your anxiety and my anxiety. There are people making money off of our addiction to cell phones. It's wonderful that we can know what's going on all around the world. It's wonderful that we have the technology of a cell phone in our pocket. What are we what are we giving up though? when we ingest these things or use these things without any kind of boundaries or without any kind of thought. And this reactivity that's rampant, often it's presented as some kind of justice issue. And even when there's a legitimate issue on the news, in reality, often people are using this legitimate issue just to make money or to get more clicks or to get followers. I mean, think of, Think of how many stories from even respected journalists, your publication of choice. They can write entire stories based on a series of tweets from that morning or the night before. These people can write uh, a whole story about one offhanded comment about a celebrity or a politician who, who just and said something offhand. And the, the, the whole industry is, is geared up to feed on the outrage monster so it can make money off of you and me. So reactivity, it's a marker for individuals but also societies of anxiousness. And second for Friedman is the herding instinct. Uh, it's a, and it's kind of a byproduct of being reactive. And you know, those of us, especially who grew up in North America, we love to say that we are individuals and we are, we're different, just like everybody else. Yeah. We're individuals, but come on, we're still human. Uh, and yeah, secular psychologists, they would call us social animals. That makes me really uncomfortable, though uh, my wife might say, oh yeah, my husband is a bit of a, a, a gorilla around the house, but we're not animals. But at the same time, we have to admit that there's a, a herd-ish mentality, a herd kind of mentality that's wired into our brain and our body. You know, uh, our culture gets sucked into reactivity and then we follow the crowd and we, we descend into this mob mentality, get the pitchforks out and you've got people saying, yes, the right says this, or yes, the left says this, or yes, my church says this and they're all angry. And, and just fed into all of this. And we're, we're wired to it and we, we have to watch out for that. So if you're drawn into being reactive, snap judgments, or if you're prone to, you may be following the herd and maybe you don't even know it. Someone told me a couple years ago, oh, everyone thinks they're the one that's in the middle and they're moderate and they're the center. <laughs> when really, 
that's that's never the case. You're, there's always someone more extreme than you or more moderate than you. But we have to watch out that we're not just following just, just out of a reactive spirit. And then all these things being reactive and then the herd mentality creates a culture of number three, blame displacement. So instead of looking for the underlying causes creating all of this toxic stuff, now, humans, we like to focus on the symptoms. We like to isolate them instead of seeing them as a part of the, the whole and using some critical thinking. And rather than taking that proactive approach to actually solve problems, we actually become reactive and we, we retreat into this ongoing victim status. You know, blaming, it's always the other people. It's always them. And blame is just thrown around and little, fewer and fewer things actually gets done, which leads to number four, this quick fix mentality. I mean, none of us have this quick fix mentality in our mind and we don't succumb to that at all. I mean, Amazon, <laughs> fast food, you know, our culture feeds into a quick fix mentality. Ah. Oh, I don't want to get the food out of the freezer and then have to put it into the microwave and wait like two whole minutes until dinner's ready. Can I just have something now? Oh, maybe someone can just bring it to me. And any of those things on their own, they're, they're not bad in and of themselves. But if we always have a quick fix mentality or give in to what John Eldridge calls the comfort culture, we get used to getting what we want right when we want it. I'm wondering if that's creating, not just in America, but all over the world, it's creating cultures run by toddlers or adults that have the mentality of toddlers. Imagine that image. But when we all give into this herd mentality of getting what we want right when we want it, it lowers our threshold for pain, which keeps us from what the writers of the Bible called perseverance. And we love to pick on sweet Gen Z. We love to pick on millennials or Gen X or, or the boomer generation. But this is true of everybody because the comfort culture is all around us. We all struggle with it in different ways and we all have different tools that we bring to the table. But this, we got to watch out for this. I want it now. Your way right away at, okay, I don't want the YouTube copyright people to come after me. But a lot of you can finish that. And it's done in advertisement, but that creates anxiety when we keep feeding into that, I want it right now. And finally, those four things combined, and I'm gonna use a $5 word here. I mean, it's really smart, but don't worry. It's, it's Edwin Friedman's uh, uh, stuff. It's not Mike Collins. So finally, this creates a lack of well-differentiated leadership. What does that mean, Mike? You just used a psychobabble word for me. Okay, so this means that we need leaders or people with clear boundary lines, meaning they, can, they understand where they end and where you begin. They understand where you end and where they begin. This is me, this is you. Emotionally, it works out like this. A leader that can be with someone while they're sad without absorbing all of that sadness. A leader that can be with someone while they're sad and still empathize with them without completely isolating from them. 
but to be able to be with people, but not merge and to not completely separate. So it's not abandonment and it's not merging with people. When we have so much reactivity, we have so much herd mentality, we forget where, where we start and other people end. They say, the experts, speaking of psychology, they say 30% of the neurons, these connections in your brain are mirror neurons. So that's why when you smile, most people, unless you're from Europe, they smile back. But it's like a natural reaction when you look at a baby, you know, a six, nine month old baby, and you slowly make eye contact and smile at them. So often their mirror neurons kick in and they smile. You ever worked in kids ministry, worked in the nursery, one baby starts crying, one toddler starts crying. What happens? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the gates of Hades come break loose. <laughs> it's those mirror neurons. We need people who can be in that. And if you're not a self-differentiated leader and you uh, are working in the nursery, oh, we got to find a different place for you to serve. You have to be differentiated where you can be in the middle of the toddlers and show them care and compassion and empathy without getting on the floor and crying with them. And depending on how long I preach, if you work in the nursery, you may feel like getting on the floor. But um, this, this differenti self-differentiated leadership, this is the reason why someone can walk into the room, maybe your family or maybe at your work, and they're angry. It's almost like you, you sense a disturbance in the force. But when someone's stressed out and anxious around, you, you feel it. And just a little tip, this isn't in my notes, just to name it reduces that dynamic, whatever it is, anger, stress, anxious, fear, say, hey, I notice I'm sensing a little tension in your voice. Are you okay? Hey, I, it seems like you're really angry. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. A lot of times that goes a long ways towards making it healthy. If you're self-differentiated enough to notice someone else's emotion instead of just absorbing it and merging it with it yourself. And I'm angry too. <laughs> so, this is actually, part of this is God wired us this way. He gave us those mirror neurons. It can be a beautiful thing. We are created in the image of a relational Trinitarian God. But, I mean, we have to make sure that we relate to people without merging with them. It's a real challenge. So, I don't want to beat this uh, to, a, to a pulp. So, Let's not get sucked into the anxiety and outrage and blame shifting. I think Jesus, as he works on our hearts, he can transform us to the kind of individuals and into the kind of church that offer a calm, wise, non-anxious presence. And it doesn't mean some stoic thing. I mean, sometimes one of the most calm and non-anxious things you can do is to smile and laugh and to break that tension instead of getting swept up in it with the rest of the group. So, and Friedman said, there's, there's only one way for a family to break this cycle. There's only one way for a small group to break the cycle or a church or even a nation. So uh, we're gonna get into this. And I think it's amazing that like 25 years later, like the stuff he wrote is more helpful 
than ever. And I think particularly as we're moving into 2024, some of the stuff that's coming down, uh, coming down um, the pike politically and culturally and, and just the stuff that we're wrestling with, uh, I think this is really helpful. And that's why I wanted to share it with you because I'm sensing and I'm seeing so much anxiety and fear and outrage and anger out there. And our world is in desperate need of followers of Jesus and other peoples to step in in a non-anxious way and break that vicious cycle. He compares those, those aspects to like a virus and then non-anxious people are like antibodies where we don't get swept up in it. And then uh, it, it counteracts all of those. And I think it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And I know many of you are like, I wanna be around those people and I wanna be that kind of person. So the trick is, it's great that we've named all these things, but the trick is that it's easier said than done, right? I so wish I could sell you a five-point plan or give you a five-point formula to just be a non-anxious person, but it's harder than that. There's no switch we can flip. So how do we become a person who brings order and calm and peace to a world that's spinning out of control? And Friedman's book is okay, but there's something even deeper. And it's in, found in the teachings of Jesus and his example and in his life. And so uh, we're in Matthew chapter 14, and uh, Matthew is a biographer of Jesus. And there's this, uh, there's this little snippet of a story that offers us a way forward. And I think this story is one that, that we need to center around for this year. It's kind of be like a theme story for the rest of our year and uh, give it a little glimpse of the kind of people that God dreams for us to become. So here we go. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then he climbed into the boat and the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. So there's a lot going on in that passage and we could talk about that for a long time, but I wanna highlight a couple of things here that relate to uh, what we've been talking about today. I mean, I love that phrase, buffeted, that the boat was buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. I've been to this, it's a giant lake, this lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and because of the wind and weather patterns, 
when storms do pop up on there, and they can uh, bring about substantial waves, but have you ever felt like your life is like that? That you're being buffeted by the wind and waves? I mean, that's been most of us for the past, I don't know, eight, 10 years, a lot of us. And I love that Jesus was on the way and moving towards, didn't run from the danger, but he was moving towards it. He wasn't thinking, oh no, he's like calm, not anxious and moving towards. And also digging into this a little bit in the original language, this shortly before dawn part that we just read, a more literal translation of that is a Roman way of keeping time, the fourth watch of the night, because they divided the night into four three-hour watches. So this is like 3 a.m. And the disciples had been on that lake, in the wind, in the waves, probably for at least nine hours, all night long. Can you? I get cranky if I stay up you know, past 10 or 11 p.m. I'm not 22 anymore. Can you imagine how tired they had to be? And then this phrase, I've always loved this. I grew up watching cartoons and Scooby-Doo and Ghostbusters. It's a ghost. So not only are they dead tired, no pun intended, they're exhausted, but this is the Sea of Galilee. Don't forget, these are, this is a Bedouin type culture, not island culture. This isn't a Moana, seafaring culture. They're so scared to death of water in general. The Hebrew scriptures talked about water. The chaos was over and formed the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Hebrew uh, scripture and in their mythology, water is the home of anarchy and chaos and evil. And especially this Leviathan, this beast, so that Greek word that's translated ghost, phantasma, that's where we get the word phantom. But there was also a common legend at the time in the first century that the souls of anyone who died in the lake, they would haunt the lake at night. So you can imagine, they're tired, they're already scared by the wind and waves, and now there's a guy walking across the lake while you're delirious with sleep? I mean, it's a ghost. They are scared to death, but in their anxiety. And I love this word from Jesus. He says, hey, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Now that's a, it is I. If this is just a refresher to you and you're very familiar with the story, you probably didn't even think about that construction. It is I. We don't speak that way in English. And this isn't the, the UK version of the, the scriptures that I'm reading. It is I is a Greek construction. You know, Jesus and the disciples probably read the, even the Old Testament in the Greek translation. It is I. It means ego. It means if you're a Bible nerd, you might recognize this as the word I am. The same word used in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am that I am. So when it was translated, most likely like Jesus is using this word on purpose and Matthew is telling them this on purpose. This is a big clue of where all of this is going. In this phrase, I am, take courage, it is I. Take courage. This is a big clue. This happens exactly in the middle of the story. Depending on how you count the original words, a couple less, couple more, 
There's 90 words on either side of the phrase, it is I. That is not my insight. I didn't count. A guy named John Mark Comer did. It is I. It's a big clue. Hey, this is the God of the Hebrews. This is God, not just a great teacher. Matthew is telling the reader, this is the center point of the story, and the person that's coming wasn't a ghost. This is the I am who I am coming over the scary water in the midst of the scary waves. And so you get the name. It's me. It is I. And Peter gets in. I love, of course, Peter's going to get in on the action. But then when he sees the wind and starts sinking because he was afraid, Jesus catches him and says, you of little faith is the translation. And the experts say, the of isn't in there. It's, it's like a, almost a term of endearment. You little faith. Not, not, a, uh, not a finger wagging kind of thing, but just this, you little faith. I, I was right here. So this, this story has affected our culture so much that we've come to see storms. Whether you've grown up in church or not, we see storms as equaling a hard time. We say that you go through the storms of life. And if you're new to reading the book of Matthew, this was actually written to read all at once in one sitting. You may be thinking like, wait a minute, did they accidentally reprint? Because I I feel like the story just happened. And well, good job of paying attention because this almost same exact story happens back in chapter 8. But when you put them side by side, there's some interesting contrast there. These two stories are very similar but there's like this little different part in each, like on a Venn diagram. So they're similar. Both stories are about storms. Both happen on the Sea of Galilee and both happen at night, all right? Oh, and my favorite part. Both stories have the disciples literally scared to death in each one. And Jesus calls them little faith in each story. But oh baby, here's the differences. In the first storm, Jesus is in the boat asleep. Talk about Jedi-level (laughs) non-anxiousness. There's a boat where seasoned fishermen are scared, scared for their life, and there's Jesus sleeping. Okay, and then the second one, Jesus isn't in the boat. The one we just read, he's been way in the middle of nowhere, up on a mountain somewhere for nine hours. It took him to get there, out of the boat. And he walks up to them, and and what happened we just read what happened but in the first storm jesus asks them a question now don't miss this he says why are you so afraid but in the second one he gives them a command do not fear i have missed that for most of my life and one way of interpreting this is that the that matthew is saying that you and i can't wake up one morning and decide to be a non-anxious presence We need time. We need to be with Jesus so he can transform us from the inside out into this kind of a person. It's not just flipping a switch. So that's why Jesus doesn't command it early on. It's probably a a loaded question. So instead, we have to become a kind of people through our, I love the word, apprenticeship to Jesus, who are free of fear and non-anxious. Doesn't mean we never experience fear. Doesn't mean that if a bus is coming towards you and you get scared, doesn't mean you're immature. No, that's actually a good thing. There's a self-preservation instinct. 
But as, as, as we spend more and more time with Jesus, he can make us into the kinds of people that can go through the storm and trust, the kinds of people that will follow him out over the deep, dark, scary places in life. So we come to the point where I'm hoping you're asking, how do I become that kind of person? And I promise you, there's not a formula. And the readers I've been, uh, the writers I've been reading a lot over the past couple of years, Mark Sayers, John Mark Comer, Todd Bolsinger, they teach that like, hey, if we follow the practices, if we practice what Jesus taught and practice what Jesus did, like this is the way to break those Friedman anxious markers of individuals and cultures. So today we're just gonna look at five of them, real practical ways of stuff that came from Jesus' life and his posture in the world that will help us. And we're gonna focus on these more in the coming weeks and months and we'll practice them together. So first counter practice to, uh, to the anxious life is just slowing down. There's a writer and pastor named Pete Scazzaro. He calls it slow down spirituality. Jesus was rarely in a hurry if you look through the scriptures. Uh, one of my favorites, Dallas Willard, someone once asked him to describe Jesus in one word. I imagine him sitting down, thinking about it for a minute and saying, relaxed. Just think about how many stories in the gospels where Jesus is interrupted. Sometimes he's in the middle of teaching. And, and you can't interrupt me right now, but I don't always respond well with a non-anxious spirit when I'm interrupted in life, when my agenda is thwarted. And oh, I found a C.S. Lewis quote that just punched me in the gut. He, he once said that how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. Oh. I need to go apologize to my kids. Um, and my wife quotes this Japanese theologian often. Uh, who this, He wrote a, a little collection of essays called The Three Mile an Hour God. Because about three miles an hour is the speed of walking. And in these essays just talk about how God walks slowly because God is love. And if we're going to walk through this world or walk through our city or anywhere and offer love, we have to slow down our pace of life. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not really going a lot of places. I'm in a stage of life where, uh, I'm, uh, I don't know, I, I'd like some more action. Well, what about your, your thoughts? How much are you speculating about this or that or what people are thinking or thinking about you? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Have Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Maybe for you, it's just slowing down and being in the present mentally, even if you're not physically moving fast. The second is one of my favorites, but one of the most difficult practices of Jesus to incorporate into my life. We see over and over that Jesus, he took a Sabbath rest. You know, it's Oh, it's this rhythm in Jesus' life of retreat and return and retreat and return, teaching and retreat, healing and retreat. It makes me think of this. It's new to me. I grew up in sports. I'm a sportsy guy. Um, and the, the, especially soccer players, they wear these monitors 
on their chest, underneath their jerseys. And it, I mean, this monitor tracks everything, GPS coordinates, temperature, um, uh, heart rate, all of that. And it's, it's this term called load management. And they make sure it does. And the theory is also that, that sometimes the best players on your team, you need to manage their load even more and sit them on the bench even more, which is so like, what? No, that's not how I grew up. <laughs> and I don't, I don't see Michael Jordan submitting to that very much in the basketball world. But load management is a big deal. They know almost to the precise minute that an athlete, how far he or she can push themselves. Do you let the Lord manage your load physically, mentally, emotionally? One of the best ways. And I don't mean getting religious about the Sabbath thing. I mean having, what I'm talking about is having a regular rhythm where there's no to-do lists, whatever that is that drains you, you need a regular rhythm. I suggest 24 hours every seven days to manage your mental, physical, and spiritual load that you carry around. And I came across this too, especially for those of you prayer warriors out there. It's been said that rest is in reality spiritual warfare. I've never thought about it this way. Think about this. If you're taking a regular Sabbath, and that you're getting enough sleep one day a week and rest and you're, you're engaging with the Lord and connecting with Jesus one day a week, this is one of the best ways we can wage spiritual warfare against the devil. It's one of the ways we can wage spiritual warfare against our own fleshly nature. Because you know what? It is difficult to tempt a well-rested, emotionally healthy, and happy person it's super easy to tempt someone who's burnt out. It's easy to test or tempt a workaholic person who's under chronic stress. So even if you, you, you love working and maybe you pride yourself on, okay, I never ever stop. What if you shifted your thinking and saying, no, this is one of the ways that I can wage spiritual warfare is to make sure that I'm getting enough rest. So I wanna encourage you if you don't, just try. And don't, don't try to do like a level 404. Try rest 101. Maybe for you, it's just shutting electronics down for an hour and going for a walk in the park. Or maybe it's taking a morning and resting in your house and just peace and quiet. So work up to it. The third is this Greek word that I love. It's called koinonia. It means fellowship. This is the vibe at Solid Ground Church in the lobby after our Sunday gathering. This is people. Not everyone takes advantage of it, but it's one of the ways that I gauge how healthy our church is, is how long do people hang out afterwards and just talk and they're with each other. Um, it's, it's deep and it, it's more than just the, the, hey, how are you? I'm, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? In passing, but there's so much real, authentic fellowship and when you have that at our church, when you have that, oh my goodness, scientifically, it brings down your stress hormones like cortisol, and it, it gives you the good ones, shaking hands, giving a hug. We are wired for this. And this is why I believe everybody needs to be in a Bible-believing, Jesus-centered, life-giving church. If you're not involved in one of those, 
please reach out to us. Like if you need help finding one, we want you. We, I love that you're here on YouTube, but you also need uh, human interaction uh, and, and fellowship with other people that, that, that know you and you need to know other people. It's just good for you. And this is one of the ways to live prophetically in our culture that's so much isolated or only sees people on social media if we have this koinonia. And the fourth, this, is, this might come out of left field for you, but it's contemplative prayer. Now me, I was born charismatic and it's energetic prayer and it's interceding and it's asking God for things, but also this quiet knowing that God is here and tapping into that. And it's not just talking at God, but also listening. And I think the more I think about these two types of prayers, charismatic prayer, contemplative prayer, it's not all like old school churchy stuff in contemplative prayer. Both charismatic and contemplative prayer are rooted in the idea that God's everywhere. God is omnipresent and it's tapping into that. And I've got some more practical ideas with that that, ta that actually go along with this fifth marker of a healthy person or healthy culture. And it comes from a writing of Ignatius and it's called Indifference but that word doesn't go down very well. You're like, wait, what, am, what are you talking about? And it doesn't mean completely abandoning people. It's what John Eldridge calls benevolent detachment. It means that we release the, the outcomes to God. And our culture says and, and reinforces this idea that we control our life if, we just, uh, if you just put your mind to it. If, if you just work hard enough, ooh, you can get that thing. I don't see if you just put your mind to it. I don't see that in the Bible. But being a non-anxious person, and it, it doesn't mean that we abandon our responsibility. That's what I love about benevolent detachment. It just means that, that we recognize that all this stuff comes from God. Everything in our life, every, every blessing that we have, every, every relationship that we have, every opportunity we have, and that we, we are aware of that to the point where we say, God, it's all yours. I came across a study that's a few years old. It's a psycho psychological survey that estimated that the average person in America has 15% control over their life. Another way to say it is the average person in the West controls 15% of their life. Isn't that good news? Let's pray and I'll release everybody. No, <laughs> there's good news in that because if you try really, really hard, the best case scenario, if you hulk out in controlling your life, maybe you can notch that number up to 17%. Wouldn't that be awesome? No, the good news in that is that this isn't up to you. You don't have to carry the burden of controlling your life. That's too much for you to carry, my friend. And as we, as we incorporate these things into our life, we, we have, of a fellowship with other people, of slowing down, of Sabbath rest, of prayer, and then just the simple practice of saying, God, I give everything and everyone to you. So it's no formula. It's actually really simple. It's just really hard. Do not worry. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So I encourage you this week, along with me, along with all of us here at Rancho Cucamonga Solid Ground Church, this week, when you wake up, I want you to pray this prayer 
and use this as a template for the, the prayer for your rest of your day. Just, God, I give everyone and everything to you. And every time you think about God, say it maybe out loud, maybe under your breath. Maybe you're in a staff meeting. God, I give everyone and everything to you. Maybe you're in the car and your kids are fighting in the back seat. God, I give everything. Just don't grip the steering wheel too tightly. I give everyone and everything to you. And I think that, that brings together all five of those things. And it is, it's not a quick, easy fix. But as we practice this over and over again, as we come back together, my dream is in the, in the coming weeks and months that we come back together and we say, you know what, on this whole number five thing, I blew it. I was trying to give everything and everyone to God, but I just took it all back and I blew it this week. That's the whole idea of practice. We can keep trying. Doesn't mean we have to do it perfectly. So let's take a moment right now to pray. That's the base of our prayer right now. God, we recognize that everything and everyone comes from you. We release the control. We, we release our illusion that we're under control of anything. And we give everyone and everything to you, God. We give everything and we give everyone to you. Dear Heavenly Father, please fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your peace that surpasses all understanding. And God, as you do transform us, we ask that you would make it true of what it says in, in your word, that we can be the salt and the light into this world, that we don't have to just hide out, that we will be so emboldened by you and, and, and filled up by you that just being <laughs> will minister to others. And we're asking that you would guide us uh, throughout the rest of this week. In God's name we pray, amen. All right, my friends. Can't wait to see you next week. Hope the first week of your year it will be great. And, uh, and uh, until we're together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. And may God give you his peace. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.